Good morning. My name is Evan. For those of you who don't know me, and I work on staff here at the church, it's a blessing to be with you here this morning. Uh, Today, as you may have guessed from our intro video for the sermon, we are kicking off a new series this morning. Over the next couple months, we're going to be journeying through Paul's letters to Timothy, both both 1st and 2nd Timothy. And we're going to truly learn what it means to care for God's church. And today I want to give some context as we begin the letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy was written by Paul after hearing that there were false teachers causing the congregation to stumble at the church in Ephesus. In his letter, Paul instructs Timothy, um, not only Timothy, but the church in Ephesus as well, to correct false doctrine and correct false teachers. And Paul, he addresses how to care for the church as raising up faithful leaders inside of the church and what it looks like to live a life above reproach. That is uh, the goal of this letter of 1 Timothy. And at the time, Ephesus, it was this large, culturally diverse, religiously diverse, and commercially flourishing city. It was a huge seaport city. It's not unlike major metropolitan areas of the U.S. today. Uh, In addition, there is this Seventh wonder of the world that is located in Ephesus, which was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, it was, Artemis is the, the Greek goddess of fertility. And for that reason, sexual immorality, sorcery, cults, they were very present in the church of Ephesus, or in the city of Ephesus, and it seeped into the church in, in result of that. And so these letters, they're written to this young man named Timothy. Uh, Timothy, he he served as Paul's trusted companion in ministry for roughly 17 years. He was born in Lystra in Asia Minor. He had a Greek father and a Jewish mother named Eunice, the scriptures say. Him, his mother, and grandmother, they probably became Christians when Paul visited their hometown on their first missionary journey. And as a young man, when Paul returned about a year later, he asked Timothy to join him in ministry and travel with him to these different areas. And throughout all these journeys, Timothy somehow managed to stay out of trouble. He avoided the riots in Thessalonica. He was not jailed with Paul and Silas when they were in Philippi. And when Paul needed someone to travel for him and to take a letter or even to minister to a church, Timothy was the person that, uh, that he would send. Um, he was sent to Thessalonica to encourage believers there. Later, he was sent to Corinth to, to, to preach and to minister to the people in Corinth. And later in this, in this today's sermon here, we're going to talk about how Paul considers Timothy to be his, his beloved and faithful child in the Lord and what that means. Uh, when, when Paul was uh, eventually imprisoned in Rome... Paul would ask that Timothy would come and to to be with him, to comfort him in his last days. In tradition, it lists Timothy as a faithful man that ministered to the church in Ephesus for many years. Uh, According to tradition, uh, Timothy was eventually martyred in Ephesus for protesting the fertility festivals of Artemis. And so this, this guy, Timothy, he is a faithful follower who is preaching the word here in Ephesus. And uh, since that time, uh, these, these letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy, as well as Titus, they've been known as Paul's pastoral epistles. These, these letters that were sent to these people that helped them minister to the churches that they were ministering to. 
These are powerful witnesses for how the church should function. Uh, But unfortunately, sometimes today there are Christians that get the wrong ideas that these letters are only for church staff or pastors. Um, But that's, that's not the case. These letters are important for anyone who confesses to be a follower of Christ Jesus. Anyone who is a member of the church, these are important. These letters talk about how God's people conduct themselves in the household of God. And when I say the household of God, I don't mean how you sit in the sanctuary. I'm talking about God's church, the people, how we interact with each other, how we we go about loving each other, doing ministry together as followers of Jesus Christ. These letters are, are relevant beyond the context of merely church leaders. It's for every believer in every context of ministry. These are important letters. And so today, uh, we're going to jump into the the letter of 1 Timothy, the first part of it. Uh, But let's take a moment and pray over our time here today. Uh, Father God, as we begin this series of learning how to care for your church, I pray, Lord, uh, especially in light of what we're going to be talking about today, that it is your word that is preached, that you are speaking faithfully through Uh, not only me, but the pastors that are here and anyone else who comes and speaks your word. Let it be your truth. Let it be your purpose that we listen and that we believe. Because it is ultimately Jesus that changes our hearts and our minds. So be with us today, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the year was 1857. There was a man named Alexander Dawson. He stood on the Australian coastline overlooking the sheer cliffs and rocky waters below. Dawson, he is is the colonial architect of this group that was meant to build a lighthouse in Australia. Along this specific coastline, there are rocky waters and ships would shipwreck on them. People would die. And so this guy was in charge of building a lighthouse on the Australian coast to minimize that. This guy here, he, he, he decides that uh, he's going to build it on this certain area, and it would prove to be a poor choice, as we will later find out that Dawson was more interested in the ease of construction rather than uh, making it an efficient navigational aid for ships. In order for this lighthouse to be built, though, he would have to go to this committee called the Pilots Board, who would ultimately decide if this location was suitable for a lighthouse. The Pilots Board went and tried to verify this location to see if it was suitable, but ultimately they, they, they were questioning the, the, the reasons why Dawson picked this place. They said that Dawson's map suffered from discrepancies so grave that it is impossible to, to decide whether positions marked on the map actually existed. They also said that they suspected him of uh, picking that site solely because it was closer to the quarry that he was going to buy the stones from. That did prove to be the case. But however, despite these, uh, these glaring deficiencies and disagreements that the pilot board was having, for reasons unknown, the chairman of the board decided to authorize the construction of this lighthouse. And for the next four decades, this lighthouse happened to be responsible for nearly two dozen shipwrecks, 
ultimately luring these ignorant ships onto the coastline that they were trying to avoid. And so in 1899, this lighthouse that you see up on the screen here, point perpendicular lighthouse, was built in a much more suitable location on that part of the coastline. But even after the decommissioning of that old lighthouse at Cape St. George, it continued to cause shipwrecks. Because in the moonlight, the sandstone would glow, leading the ships over there. And so eventually, it was decommissioned by the Australian Navy, who would then destroy it completely, and that is what stands of it today. I tell you this story because our section of Scripture today is, is, is very similar in a way to this story of these lighthouses. Paul, he writes to Timothy regarding false teachers that have come into the church at Ephesus. And just like the lighthouse that lured the ships onto the rocky shorelines of the Australian coastline, the false teachers in the church of Ephesus would lure believers into believing a false reality of the gospel and away from the truth of God. Throughout the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to talk about three truths that are very important when we go about uh, worshiping in a, in a church, when we go about listening to people who, who teach the word, if we don't know what's going on, how do we, how do we discern whether or not these, the people that are teaching are true believers who are teaching the word of God or if they're false teachers in general? And so these three truths are what we're going to be focusing on. The first is this, that we understand our calling. The second is that we would understand what the gospel is. And the third, we would understand what the purpose of the law is. We're going to see each of these played out in the, in the message and in our passage today. So if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. If you have a Bible, you can open it. There's Bibles around the room as well. It will be on the big screens, though, uh, if you don't have that. When you get there, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, in Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons to not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things that they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, 
enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. The first point that we're going to discuss here today is the importance of understanding our calling. Merriam-Webster's dictionary describes a calling as this, a strong inner impulse toward a particular course of action, especially when accompanied by, a, by conviction of a divine influence. And so as we begin our passage today, we see basically two callings laid out for us to take note of. In verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. In this section, this is Paul's introduction to the letter, and we see this a lot whenever Paul writes these letters. He, He blends together a formal and an informal introduction here, And Paul states his apostolic calling here, his authority of this letter, by stating that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. This authority allows all that we'll read, because it's not just Timothy going to be reading this letter, it's the entire church of Ephesus who would read this letter and they would see this understanding that the contents in the letter are, are true, are from God and to be trusted. And to further expound upon this point, Paul's apostleship, it is by the command of what he says is God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. This phrasing of God our Savior, it's in the New Testament only found in the pastoral epistles. But Paul here is referencing uh, the Old Testament. He's, He's looking back on how God is known as Savior. And he qualifies this by by pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the hope. Jesus Christ completing our salvation when he returns. And so Paul, he starts this off by by stating for the believers that this is the age of salvation for believers because the false teachers in this church, they're already saying that salvation has occurred, the believers have already been taken, everybody else is on their own. And so Paul here, he's reminding the believers like, hey, listen, this is the time of salvation. And guess what? It will be completed through Jesus Christ. It's not done yet. And so Paul, he, he, he starts it off by this, and then he introduces Timothy as my true child in the faith. As we have already discussed, Paul, or Timothy has been with Paul for several years, and Paul has a deep love and, and, and intimacy for him. And this pronouncement of Timothy's genuine faith in Christ, it, it's for the church to to pronounce the calling of Timothy. It's a vote of confidence for this task that is laid ahead for him. The church is to take this pronouncement as the apostle's stamp of approval on Timothy. His faith and doctrine are, are, are to be trusted, particularly in light of the controversy that is happening in the church already. This is Paul's stamp of approval saying, hey, you can trust him. His calling is genuine. Listen to him as he brings the word of Christ. And Paul, he ends this section with a, with a prayer of grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is a blessing that is typical for, for Paul's greetings. Grace and peace are the melding together of the Greek and Hebrew, the Greek word charis and the Hebrew word shalom. 
This is a way for Paul to uh, formally greet the audience and to say this letter, it's meant for everyone, Jew, Gentile, everyone who reads this, this is, it's meant for you. But Paul includes something that's not always typical of his writing here. He includes the word mercy. And there's great significance in this instance for mercy. It denotes this special prayer of God for a person that is in need. The person that is in need here is Timothy, as he has this difficult task ahead of him. So he's praying this special blessing over the calling that he has to minister to the church of Ephesus. And so Paul, he just, he opens up this letter stating his apostolic calling and helping the church at Ephesus to understand that Timothy's calling is to minister to the people, minister by bringing the word of God and truth into the church. Timothy's calling, it was to minister to a place that was completely counter to the way that God calls us to live. His calling is to challenge leaders that are much older than him, who are in the church teaching this false doctrine. His, his calling is to follow the Lord and further the gospel. And he, Timothy, he did just that. His calling would ultimately lead him to be martyred for proclaiming God. And just like Timothy, we too as Christians have a calling. We are called to take the message of Christ to this very dark world that we live in. But unlike Timothy, how many of us faithfully follow that call. I'll be the first to admit that I failed at that. You know, when I, when I worked at, at, and, and I worked with people who did not know Christ, not here, obviously, back when I worked in the secular world, but when I worked with these people, there were times that I just, I just failed at sharing the gospel with them. And I'm sure that that is true for some of you here today, and I'm not the only one that's had that experience. But as believers in Christ, we, we, we need to understand that our calling is to further the gospel. And that includes every single person that confesses themselves to be a believer. Every one of them, us is called to take the message of God out. And if you're not sure what that looks like, if you're, if you're not sure how to do that, I would encourage you to visit the E3 groups that Tom Fox and Mike Bongo host Saturdays and Sundays. Those guys, they're all about equipping you for going out and doing ministry. And so if you're, you're questioning how to do that in your life, go check that out. But ultimately, we need to understand that our calling is to further the gospel. That is what Timothy is doing here, and that is what I encourage each of us to do as we leave. But this leads us to the second point of understanding what the gospel is. We can't fully live out our calling if we don't actually understand the gospel message. In this section of the passage, this next section, Paul discusses false teachers, how they've come in and that they've distorted the truth. And he makes it clear that these individuals do not know or understand at all what the gospel of Christ is. And so he warns Timothy against these people who promote these false doctrines. Verses 3 through 7 say this, as I, Paul, have urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things in which they make confident assertions. As Paul begins this letter, he does so in a way that is uncharacteristic of him. He lacks the standard thanksgiving that he gives in his other letters. And this exclusion of a thanksgiving also promotes the point that this letter was meant for the larger church at Ephesus. Because what is happening in the church in Ephesus gives no cause for thanksgiving from Paul. This is not good stuff. And so Paul is, is getting straight to the point. He, he states the purpose of the letter, which is to stay in Ephesus, Timothy, sort out this false teaching that is plaguing the church. And so he writes this letter. He tells them to stay, do what I have told you to do. And he indicates the, that there are certain persons that are teaching these false doctrines. Here he doesn't call out any specific person and if you, if you think that's soft, don't worry, he will call out specific people later in the letter. But Paul here, he, he, he's talking about these, these people who are teaching, and these individuals are most likely elders and leaders in the church that are talking in some capacity, teaching in some capacity, but they're not teaching truth. They don't know what they're teaching. And so Paul, or Timothy's responsibility is to put an end to it. The command is clear. Address anything and everything that pulls people away from the gospel. After all, if we lose the gospel message, we lose everything as believers. And so in verse 4, Paul explains what some of these false doctrines are. He explains that these are myths and endless genealogies. Most of us have an idea of what a myth is. It's usually like a fable or far-fetched story, oftentimes about gods, uh, it's like the Greek myths. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of those. Uh, however, at this time in history, the word myth is a very derogatory term. Basically, it's, it's a story that is deceptive and false. So Tim, or Paul here, is, he's just laying it out. These things that they're teaching, these myths, they're, they're, they're deceptive, they're false. The other term that Paul uses is genealogies. And when we think of the word genealogies, we're probably thinking of a list of someone's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, as well as everybody, all the other ancestors that go way back in time. But there's more to the term genealogies here in the Greek than, than what we might realize. Coupled with this term of myths, Paul is most likely referring to these non-canonical Jewish writings of the time that were speculating on the Genesis narrative. So there's these stories that were circulating at the time of Paul. Specifically, there was one uh, called the Book of Jubilee. This thing, it took all of the people that were in the Genesis narrative and made these stories about each of these individuals. And that's what the, the teachers were teaching in Ephesus. Not the Word of God, they were teaching these stories. All right? It's, it's almost, uh, the best way to describe this would be to relate it to what we would consider fan fiction today. When people uh, would, who are fans of certain book series take the stories, take the characters and the setting uh, that they really like, and they make a new story that they would rather promote, that they think is better than the original story that has already been written. And so that's what Paul is speaking of here. These people in Paul's day, they've adopted these additional stories, and they're teaching it as if it was fact. 
And this is the reason that, that Paul is saying speculation is being promoted rather than the message of the gospel that has been given to the church. And so after initially addressing this issue that Timothy faces, he, Paul returns to this command that has been given to not allow this false teaching to be taught. He says that the goal of this in verse 5 is love. These false teachers have been involved in this meaningless speculation. They've been involved in this and promoting them, or the purpose of ordering them to stop is to bring not only the teachers but the church back to the proper result of God's work, the work that is based in faith, which is to love one another. Love is this concept that Paul uses to summarize the goal, which is preaching and teaching, to love one another. Love is the active response to God's grace. It's expressed in the sacrificial action done on behalf of others. Love springs from this pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That's what Paul is talking about. And when we look at this false teaching, we, we know that it's harmful to the church. It can lead believers astray from the truth of the gospel. Verses 6 and 7, it war- like, Paul's warning Timothy that some have already swayed from having a pure heart. Some have already gone away from having a good conscience. Some have already gone away from having a sincere faith. They've turned aside to meaningless talk and they don't even know what they're talking about. Verses 6 and 7, it says certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered into this vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things in which they're making confident assertions. These people confidently proclaim something in which they don't know. And Paul makes it clear that these, these, these teachers, they, they've gone away from the faith. These individuals wanting to be teachers of the law had no idea what they were discussing. And Paul here, he's, he's painting this picture of this double contrast between the speculation of false teachers and the truth of the gospel. He does this because he wants Timothy and the people of the church of Ephesus, he wants them to understand and discern the difference between the two, between speculation and the truth. And that applies for us today. When we listen to those who would teach and lead, we need to be discerning as as to what they're saying is in fact from God. Let me give you two things that you can do to really ask yourself this question and make sure that what is being said is in fact truth. There's two tests. The first is the test of faith. Does it come from God? Is what they're saying in alignment with Scripture? Or is it the product of someone's human imagination? The second test is love. Does it promote unity within the body of Christ? And if it doesn't, because sometimes truth can divide if, if in the right circumstance, is it irresponsibly divisive? Is what is being said out of faith, faithful following of Christ, or is, is it out of love? Faith means that we ultimately receive a word from God. And love means that the discussion builds up the church. As members of the church, it's our responsibility to be vigilant against false teaching that can lead us astray. We need to study God's word carefully and critically and evaluate doctrine and teaching that we encounter. It's important to follow truth and not be swayed 
by the latest trends or fads of culture. As we said earlier, if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. We need to focus on the gospel in every point of our life. And so this leads us into our, our final point of the day. Once we understand the gospel message, we also under, have to understand the purpose of the law of God. Verses 8 through 11 say this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God which, in which I have been entrusted. In these verses here, Paul is explaining the purpose of the law and in, the, in that it is good when used in the correct way. And so how do we how do we approach the law of God in the correct way? How do we do that? Well, the, uh, the, the simple answer is that we understand that the law is not des de designed to save people. The law is designed to show what sin is. It's designed to convict us of our wrongdoing. Merely keeping the law, it does not save and that's why the false teachers needed to be corrected. They're promoting that, hey, if you follow the law in all things, you're going to be saved. So don't eat meat, uh, don't, don't get married, do all these things, and you're going to be saved. That's what they're promoting. But the purpose of the law is this, that we understand that it is, it is designed for the sinner and that salvation cannot be obtained apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through Christ that we as believers can be saved and made righteous. And that's the reason that Paul takes the time to describe who the law is really for. He then kind of breaks the text down into two different sections. First, he lists three groups of people. And then he really starts connecting uh, to the Old Testament and to the Ten Commandments to make his point. The first, he says that uh, it is for the lawless and the disobedient. He says that it is for the ungodly and for the sinners. And he says that it is for the unholy and profane. This first term, lawless and disobedient, it heads this list because it's general descriptions of behavior that expresses defiance and rebellion towards God. The second set uh, is ungodly and sinners. That's the second description. And these terms, they're often found together because they express an arrogant rejection of God. And the last set of terms is that of unholy and profane. These terms, they depict, um, first the term unholy, it depicts an inappropriate worship of God. It also depicts blasphemous behavior to things that should be considered sacred. Profane, on the other hand, it can be translated as irreligious. And basically it's denoting false doctrines, a foreignness from the God of Israel, and any other kind of ritual defilement. And so these first three sets of terms here, Paul is wanting his believer, or wanting the readers to understand that the law, it's meant for an unrighteous person. The law, it's, this thing is showing these behaviors that are characterized as rebellion, idolatry, pagan profanity, general opposition to God. Paul's desire is to show that the law convicts us of our sinful nature and to show us that we all stand condemned 
at the foot of the cross. In addition, Paul then, he goes to point on to the Ten Commandments in Exodus. He does this to make this point perfectly clear. Now, I, I want to be clear. I'm not going to take the time to go into explaining each of the vices that Paul is going to list. That would take way too much time, uh, and I don't want to keep you past noon here today. And Just teasing. But it, I could spend so much time talking about each of these. And I know sometimes it might seem like a cop-out when we're like, oh, we don't have enough time to talk about what seems like the most important part. So I want to give you a resource here today. Uh, about two years ago, Mike Bongo preached a sermon at the beginning of our Roman series that addresses a lot of these sins and vices that are listed here in this letter. And instead of me going through here and, and trying to do as good of a job as what Mike did, I want to direct you to his sermon. Uh, so earlier this week, I asked him if he would include that with the Engage Gospel Outreach videos. If you get my news blast, I'm promoting the news blast, read it if you haven't. Uh, in the news blast, we included this sermon so that you can check this out. You can go into detail with each of these things. Um, Blank does a masterful job at discussing how we as believers approach these different vices. He does a masterful job at explaining uh, what this looks like for the church today. So I want to direct you to that um, so that I, I don't go over my time here today and uh, that I can really just discuss what Paul is intending with this specific letter. And so um, let's get back into it here. Paul, he first states that the law has been laid down for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Other translations, such as the NASB, the New American Standard Version, it will say to those who kill their fathers and mothers. This here, it's relating to uh, the commandment in Exodus 20.12, where God says to honor your father and mother. The purpose of these two comparisons here is to show us that no matter the severity, all stand condemned according to the law. Sin is sin, and any failure to honor one's parents leads that person into being condemned. In addition, the second reason Paul gives for why the law has been laid down is for the murderers. This has been drawn on Exodus 20, 13, which states, you shall not murder, referring to anyone who has wrongfully taken the life of another. The third reason that Paul gives for why the law is laid down is for the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Paul connects this to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, in this section, Paul is he's referring to any sexual sin in whatever form it may take as an indication that all will stand condemned. Jesus even speaks to this specific one in Matthew 5, 28, where he says, But I tell you, everyone that looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So even lusting after someone in your mind is evidence that we stand condemned. The fourth reason for why Paul says the law has been laid down is for the enslavers. This relates to the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Now you might be thinking this association is a bit of a stretch, but let me give you some context. During this time period, there were those that hated Christians so much that they would break into their houses and that they would kidnap men, women, and children and sell them into the slave trade. Paul gives this really gross violation of the Eighth Commandment in order to make the point that anyone who has ever violated the rights and the liberties of their fellow man, they stand condemned according to the law. The fifth reason for why Paul says the law has been laid down is for the liars and for the perjurers. 
This is connected to the ninth commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The person that Paul is referencing here is not only the person that tells an untruth, but for also those whose actions and attitudes are out of harmony with the confession of their lips. Paul has given this general and also a descriptive list of exactly who the law is intended for. But he has one final note. The law is intended for whatever else and whoever else is, counter, is, is contrary to sound doctrine. If anyone believes that Paul's previous list doesn't apply to them, well, guess what? Paul here makes sure that everyone gets the point. All are included. There is no sinner or sin that can escape the condemning nature of the law. That's Paul's point here. And so Paul, he explains in this section why it's important to understand the purpose of the law. He shows that sound doctrine, it demands that we keep the law, but we know that sound doctrine also declares that by our sinful nature, we cannot even have a hope of, of keeping that. We cannot do it on our own. And so Paul's ending statement in his section is this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in which I have been entrusted. In understanding what the law was intended for, we understand further the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on our behalf so that we might be redeemed and saved. By understanding that the, the law, it, that we all stand condemned and we see that that Jesus is the hope of why we can be saved, we, we get and understand our calling. Right? It's this progression. When we, when we understand that we stand condemned before the law, when we understand that it is by God's glory that he sent his son to die on our behalf and we believe and have faith in him, we understand that we have been called as believers, as children of God. We recognize that no one is perfect, that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all realize that we cannot rely on our own works to earn salvation, but rather we put our faith into Jesus. Ultimately, we understand that this calling is to share that with others, to help others see Jesus. And so as we close for today, I want to draw your attention to another story, this time from the book of Acts. Paul was uh, making his way back to Jerusalem, and on this journey, he made a pit stop to see the elders of the church of Ephesus. During this time in this conversation, this is what Paul says to the elders of Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, all to draw away disciples after them. Only a few years after this conversation that Paul has with the elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul's warning came true. He sent Timothy to then correct this issue, to combat these false teachers. Paul understood that there would be those who come to deceive and to lead the church astray. But church, this this warning that Paul gives, it's not just for the church of Ephesus. It's for our church today. 
There are people today in today's world in America and all over the world that do not truly understand the gospel, that do not truly understand the things that are written in this book that they teach. In our churches in America, there are those who lead the flock away from God, further and further away from the truths of the gospel. And as believers in Christ, we must guard and protect the gospel message that we have been entrusted with. Let us be a church that's dedicated to this word. Let us be a church that are servants to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Let us follow him in all things that we do. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for our time, Lord. Thank you that we can be in a place that that focuses on teaching the truths of your scriptures. Thank you for being a place, for letting us be a place where we can come and worship your name. And Father, I pray that you will just place a hedge of protection around this church. And by when I say church, Lord, I'm talking about each and every person. Protect each person that is in our flock. Allow them to be discerning of the truth that others might speak to discern whether that is actually truth or whether it is falseness that is, that is creeping into their lives. Father, let us in all things point to you. Let us see you in all things, God. Guide our steps. Be with us. Carry us through our hard times and our struggles. Because, God, we cannot do it on our own. It is only through you. So be with us in this time. Father, as we are about to take an offering today, I pray that this offering will be used to advance your kingdom. That this offering has nothing to do with anything that we want as church leaders, as, as me, Pastor Mike, any of the guys in the office and ladies in the office. Lord, it's not about us. It's about you. And Father, I pray that this offering would, would advance your kingdom, God. So be with us now, Lord. Help us to see you in all things. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.